there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Do you love to listen to audio as much as I do? Have you ever tried an audio book? As a fan of this podcast, you must already enjoy listening to stories just like the other green future growers. Well, the Organic Gardener podcast has teamed up with Audible to offer you a free audio book. Just go to www.organicgardenerpodcast forward slash book or type book into the search bar at the organicgardenerpodcast.com and you can get listening to your first audio book today. Oh, it's kind of nice. And am I remembering right? Are you in Pennsylvania? No, we're in Kentucky. Kentucky. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so I'm so excited. You started a podcast and just things are going really good. So... I don't know. Should we just jump right into it? Sure. Okay, cool. I'll just introduce you and we'll go from there. That sounds good to me. Cool. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. I am just super excited. It is Monday, March 18th, 2019, and it's sunny here. It's sunny where my guest is, I think, and just um, he's coming back. He talked to us before, but now he started his own podcast called the No-Till Market Gardener Podcast. Market Garden? Uh, the No-Till Market Garden Podcast. Um, so from Kentucky, here's Jesse Frost to tell us about their garden adventures and farm adventures and the podcasting adventure. So welcome back, Jesse. Thanks for having me back, Jackie. Well, I'm super excited. And besides, you're a rock star millennial, right? You and your wife? <laughs> I, I we were definitely millennials. I I think my back maybe hurts a little bit too much to call myself a rock star. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, cause I've just been like really like talking to publishers about writing a book about the rock star millennials that I've interviewed, and so fingers crossed we're gonna get to um, promote you in there. So, uh, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, good good luck with that. That's how great. great you hardworking millennials are. And that's probably why your back hurts because you're one of those hardworking guys. So uh, my listeners always tell me I talk too much. So I'll be quiet and tell, tell people about your farmstead and your new podcast and just, I don't know, wherever you want to start. Sure. Sure. Uh, well, yeah. So my, I am one half of the farm team of rough draft farmstead. My wife, Hannah Crabtree is the other half and arguably the better half. She, we are in central Kentucky. Um, you can kind of picture about 25 minutes northeast of, Louis, of Lexington and about an hour from Louisville. Um, sorry, northwest of Lexington. 
And uh, it's kind of in the middle of the state, and it's pretty hopping, hopping spot as far as Kentucky goes. Uh, we our farm is about three quarters of an acre, and we are mixed vegetables. We do have some sheep, and our uh, four-year-old has ten chickens. Um, but mostly, we are vegetables, and we uh, all yeah. And then also, uh, we do our entire farm is now a hundred percent no tillage. And, um, and I'm happy to talk about that, but I also, yeah, the, the podcast is, uh, kind of geared towards that. It's geared towards people. The no-till market garden podcast is kind of geared towards, uh, growers like ourselves who are small production, but trying to make a living off of our vegetables and, um, but who also want to farm ecologically and reduce or eliminate their tillage. And, uh, we, I interview uh, various people from all over the, the country and all over the world, actually, and um, talk about their methods and how they do it, because it seems that everybody kind of does it a little bit differently. So I haven't posted it yet, but I just did an interview with Andrew Mefford from the, uh, what's it called? Growing for Market magazine. And he just wrote that no-till farming book. Have you seen it? Yeah. Oh yeah. And Andrew's a good friend of ours. He's also a sponsor of the show. We, um, grown for market magazine is awesome. They've been doing, they kind of were at the forefront of all this sort of no-till market gardening stuff. Uh, Andrew said, I think he even talks about it in that book, how they, yeah, they were publishing articles on no-till market gardening for since way back. Like that, that they're, they're definitely like a cutting edge trendsetter uh, growing for market. It's a great publication. If you, if you don't get it, we just finally got it this year. Like I've wanted to get it for years. And this year I finally was like, we're going to make that work in our budget. And the first episode, the first issue we got was the one where he had just, um, where he talks about his book coming out and I texted, I like emailed him that day and then he came on my show, but I had heard about him only because I interviewed, um, Aiden Finney, who might be somebody you might want to talk to, who is the market farmer, um, at this place, Young's farm in, on Long Island. And he was the one that told me that Andrew had taken over the growing for market magazine. And, um, but he, they're kind of no till and they like he Young's farm, transition to organic like this might be their third year in their transition and so he might be a good guest for you oh that's cool yeah that's great i'll, I'll have to yeah i'll make connect you with Eden. uh and tim dooley who's the he's the actual owner of the farm or the manager like his his family owns it and he runs it but eden does all the you know runs the farm part anyway nice uh Tell listeners, I don't know, what do you want to talk about next? Like, do you want to talk about, I don't know, do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year for you guys? Or, yeah, I mean, sure. Well, we're so far. Kind of like, when seasons. I talked to you, it was just like you guys had just started out. So, like, your knowledge is just everybody's going to hear anything you want to share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, so I can kind of start from that perspective. I think the last time that we spoke. Perfect. Uh, we were living in Bug Tussle, Kentucky, and this is about, that's about three hours away from where we are now. And, uh, Bug Tussle, Kentucky is kind of an hour from everything kind of place. If you can imagine that it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, 
it's an hour east of Bowling Green, Kentucky, and it's an hour and a half northeast of Nashville. So it was that, those were our two main markets, and they were pretty far away. And we felt pretty isolated. We were also really far away from our family. So once we had our son, which I don't remember if he was born yet or not when we spoke, but I don't think um, so. I think once you just had, had your first, little girl. Right. We we only yeah we uh, we just have a son but we um well now we have two sons oh but we didn't have a baby maybe when we spoke but then we had one and um he kind of changed things I mean as kids do and we decided to we wanted to move a little bit closer to our family and just have a, have him have a good relationship with them but also to be able to ha- you know ask them for help on kind of a whim. Uh, in case we have a big harvest day. And we also at the time were kind of improving and wanting to increase our production enough to make it more sustainable. Uh And I think that's something that I often emphasize to people is that when, you know, uh, homesteading is what we were sort of aiming at. You know, that's what we were doing in Bug Tussle and that's what we really wanted to do. And we realized at that point that that's, it's just not a viable approach to to sustainability because you really have to be making enough money on whatever it is you're doing. You can have an off-farm job. You can be a homesteader, but you have to have an income unless you're retired. And so we weren't retired. We were young, but we were at, you know, we, we felt like we were retired. We were just homesteading. So, um, we had to find a way uh, we had to make that decision of what we really wanted to do. And we wanted to grow vegetables professionally was ultimately our decision. So, uh, we started developing, you know, our, our growing skills a little bit more and we've slowly gotten better and better at growing enough that we can kind of make a living doing it, um, increasingly so. And, but it did require us to have a little bit better land. So in our choice in moving back closer to home, now we're in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, um, and we're only 20 minutes away from our folks. So that, that also played a factor was finding land that was maybe closer to a market, but also maybe a little bit flatter and offered a little bit more, had some infrastructure for us to have a wash pack shed and those sorts of things. And we could have built all that, but it was very expensive and it was, it was, uh, we were very isolated where we were living before. So, um, we transitioned, yeah, we moved to, um, Lawrenceburg and then we started building up this farm and, we kind of had in our mind that we were going to be, you know, sort of work our way towards no-till. And then last year, uh, we just kind of made the leap and decided to stop using the tractor in the garden at all. And we'd used it a little bit in the spring, and then we stopped. Uh, there, you know, our tunnels haven't been tilled in two years since we basically put them in production. Um, and yeah, the gardens will be fully without any sort of tillage this year. And, uh, and I'm happy to kind of go into detail on how that works. Um, yeah, we would love to hear that. And I know like a big question my listeners have is exactly what you're talking about, like how to make that growth from growing just for your family to making enough that you can make a profit and make a living off of, cause you only have three quarters of an acre. Is that what you said? Right. Right. Yeah. Three quarters of an acre is what we're at right now. And we're doing that pretty intensively. And this will be the first year that we really, really go for it because we've we've had like various incomes and we haven't needed to go. And since we moved last year, we haven't really gone crazy, but we're looking at about $55,000 on that three quarters of an acre. Um, and that's gross income, but our net is pretty, will be pretty solid just because we don't have a lot of 
great expenses in terms of the farm expenses. Um, but we're, you know, slowly increasing that. Like ideally we'd be making about $65,000 a year on three quarters of an acre and being able to take home about 35,000 and that would cover everything, but we're not quite there yet. We're moving up to that, to that point. But we, um, that's, that's, that just comes from us being able to intensively manage, uh, the bed. So, and so, uh, we're, there's a lot of things that go into it, right? And, and to answer your, to get to your sort of question about how to go from just growing your own vegetables to making a living, um, we've kind of settled on a modest living. That's one part is that we've decided that part of our capital is our lifestyle, is the kind of things that we enjoy doing, um, which is being outside, spending our time with our family, you know, we working from home. Uh, those things are valuable to us. So more valuable than making a little extra money is that. And then it also covers us being able to save some money and, um, you know, all the basic stuff that we need and, and then some, and also take vacations and stuff. So we've, we live rather modestly in that sense. But you also like in some ways live a, a fairly wealthy life as far as like the food that you're eating is super healthy. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and we've always eaten that way, but now it's less expensive when you grow your own. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is a fair point is like, you have to really kind of redefine your, your image of what wealth is. And I think a really good way of doing that is to kind of sit down and decide what you want from your life. And the, they do like holistic management. And we may have even talked about this, but, um, holistic management where you, um, basically take, you know, you, you look at your life, you examine what you want from it and figure out how, what you're doing now is getting you there. And so we did that and we kind of realized like where we were living wasn't going to get us there. So we had to kind of make some changes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that looking at wealth a little bit different is, is extremely important. You know, you, there are a lot of different capitals in this world that are not all just money. You know, one capital we think of is skill sets, being able to build something, being able to, take care of livestock. Husbandry is an amazing capital, um, with the capital, capital of community, like being able to, uh, have, you know, your neighbors come over and pull your truck out of the mud. That is a huge capital. That's something that you cannot put a number on, but that's super important to us too. And that's, that's something that we're always trying to, um, get out of our farming. So, um, those things are really important and, and to view it, you know, in that way, it's a little bit more abstract, but it is important if you're trying to think like, I want to make the leap from being a gar backyard gardener to a professional grower, uh, to really sit down and examine what you want, because it's really, farming is really hard. Farming is extremely difficult work and, uh, you have to figure out, you know, how much money you need to make, like what's your budget and all those sorts of things, like sitting down with a pen and paper and figuring out what you want, how much you need to make, and then mapping out exactly how you'll do that with vegetables or with proteins, you know, chickens or, or beef or whatever it is that you want to get into. Um, those are, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's like kind of the first step is to sit down with a piece of paper and your family and just say, what do we want and how are we going to do it? And how, how much money would we need to make per week at market or how much money, how many pounds of vegetables would we have to sell? Is that realistic? Um, would we have to do still keep a part-time job, those sorts of things. So you can slowly work into it as well, instead of just, you know, going for it. Um, so I think that's a good step. I also think it's important to have some amount of startup capital into monetary startup capital, just to 
to not make it so hard on yourself right from the get go, um, to be able to buy, you know, to maybe have a cushion to have a few failures your first year and, uh, to be able to afford some of the equipment that you need that makes it a little bit more efficient. Um, I think all those things are important in terms of like getting, going from, you know, uh, you know, a, a backyard garden to the, to a proper, you know, growing, uh, professional grower situation. Um, do you want to talk yeah, about that, like how no till makes those, that equipment and tool, at least that may be more possible for some people than if they weren't going that way. And like, what are like the most essential tools you've decided that work for you guys? Right. That's a great question because it's a, it it's a cool. good point in, in terms of, of, um, why we chose no-till and it a lot of the reasons that we chose I'll, I'll describe our no-till system in a second but that there's a really practical nature to it in terms of if you're not turning over the soil you're not having to go and hook your tiller up on the back of your tractor or whatever implement you're using get your tractor and drag it out to the soil you know like you don't have you're you're taking you're removing a bunch of steps and you're removing a bunch of equipment that depreciates right if if you're just going out and planting and removing plants and that's it, like there's no real bed prep except for maybe composting and a little raking, um, then you've eliminated an extraordinary amount of, of work, of passes, of, of walking, of, of working on your tractor, of, you know, all that stuff. So, but it, it, you can't, it's harder to do that on a large scale without a tractor. Like if you're going to, if you want to do 20 acres, then it's a much different subject. But when you're talking about three quarters an acre, half an acre, you can do a fair amount of money on that amount of land. Um, as long as you're being efficient and you're not, you know, spending your time getting your tractor out and all those sorts of things, like you're trying to be as lean as possible. Um, and I think that, in terms of, you know, uh, getting like in terms of our, let me just kind of describe our production system. So Perfect. it can, so people can kind of get an idea of how, what I'm talking cool. about. Yeah. So we started out with a tilled garden and in many cases I would even recommend people tilling their garden, but this is like, if you start, let's just start from the very beginning. Like, let's say we have a pasture and you take your soil sample in and the pasture has less than 2% organic matter. In a situation like that, I would recommend somebody till their soil, put a bunch of compost down and till it into their soil to get that organic matter into the soil so it has it so the microbial life has a good habitat. And when I say compost, I mean some good, well-made, homemade compost. And you could also, you know, kind of any sort of like municipal compost is okay, but you need good homemade, but you know, biologically driven compost. And you need to get that into your soil. Um and you don't have to do that, but I think if you have low organic matter, especially maybe in clay soils or something like that, where you, you know, have a, ex, you know, excessive water retention, that is something to think about. Um, so the next step would be to shape your beds. And for us, we went with 30 inches, but I don't necessarily think that's the best idea. I think you could probably get a lot more space out of 36 or 42 inch beds and they could be 50 feet or hundred feet or 25 feet or however long you have. Um, and I, I actually like 50 foot beds because of the next step that I'm going to talk about. When I say shaping your beds, what I'm talking about is you can use a tractor to get them shaped up and then you just get, that's a one-time tillage. That's the last time you're going to be doing that. Uh, 
Or the other thing that what we do is we get it all, you know, we get our minerals and everything, you know, like you get an Albrecht soil test, something that'll tell you what your minerals are, what mineral needs you have. You go ahead and lay that down. You lay your compost down and you get all that worked into the soil. And then you take compost and you spread that pretty thick. Uh, it, you're, you're kind of up, you're up front. This is kind of where that startup capital thing comes in. Uh, your upfront expenditure is probably going to be about two, one and a half to two yards of compost per hundred foot, 30 inch bed. So you'd have to change that math depending on how wide your beds and how long your beds are. Uh, but if you're talking a hundred beds, that's, you know, a hundred or 200 yards of compost. It's a lot. So that's one thing is that your initial startup is a lot of compost, but once you get that compost down, then that's kind of it. It stays there and it acts as a weed suppressant. So this goes back to the practicality thing. It blocks weeds. So then the next step is to just plant your plants. You either you're transplanting or you're direct seeding straight into that compost. Now, I should also say there are many ways to no-till. That's our sort of production method. So after the first year, there's maybe four inches of compost, maybe sit up to six inches of compost on top of the beds. And then the second year, we're really only adding an inch of compost per season to just keep it kind of replenished. Uh, so your first year is quite intensive and your second year is a little bit less so. Um, and basically there are, but like I said, there's a lot of different ways to do a no-till system. So that's, that's the one that works really well in an intensive situation like we're in. And where you all are in the Midwest, it would work really well because you don't get quite as intense rainfalls probably as we do. We get regular three or four inch, you know, not maybe three inch rainfalls, but we get regular heavy downpours, you know, several times a month. Um, so that can be a little bit rough on the excessive compost. It can wash it out a little bit in spots. Um, but in, especially in a drier place where you're, where you need to hold in that moisture and you don't have quite as many insane rains, uh, that, that can be a, that can be a great option. Um, and then there's other options too. There's, uh, people who don't use any excess compost, they use mineral balancing and a small amount of compost. And then they kind of still work that into the soil lightly with, uh, maybe a rake or a, a tilter, which really is some people think of as a controversial implement, but it really doesn't go any much, much deeper, if any deeper than a rake. Um, but it's like, an it's a, it's a little, like a miniature tiller and they just work that top, you know, inch and a half of the soil with some amendments and then they seed or sow into that. That's, that would be, Examples of that would be like Connor Crickmore at Neversink Farm or uh, Alex Eakins at Ace of Spades. That's their sort of style. I, I kind of call it a low or no mulch style of no-till. Uh, there are several different styles that are uh, based on cover cropping. In an, intensive, in, a, in an intensive situation, the cover cropping is less about um, you know, a lot of people may be familiar with like sowing a cover crop in the fall and then you crimp it in the spring and then you plant into that crimp with either a seed drill or you, a transplanter or something like that in, uh, there are other options though, that you cover crop in the fall with cover crops that die and they winter kill. And then in the spring, you just rake those off and plant. So you get the photosynthesis for most of the winter and then it dies. And then in the spring, you've got a nice mulch and you kind of rake it back when you need to seed it, or you can just plant straight into that dead mulch. Uh, the other option is something like, and that would be like peas or oats. Your other option would be like cereal rye, vetch, 
crimson clover that kind of withstand the winter. And then in the spring, you would, once those kind of come start to jump back up in the spring, you would um, crimp them down sort of or smash them down as best you can. And then you'll pull a tarp over top of them and leave that for a few weeks. And that tarp will, uh, and I'm talking like big black silage tarps, will actually uh, kind of just do the killing for you. And then you can pull that tarp off and plant into that mulch. Um, and that would be more of a transplanting situation. That would be harder to do a, um, a sow it like a direct seeding situation, but yeah, you can transplant your plants directly into that mulch. Um, and then, you know, there are other options too. You can use various different, you know, there are people that use cardboard on a fairly sizable acreage. There's the, the cover cropping system. If you want a model for that, I like to do, to give people models so they can actually go and see somebody using it. Uh, Frith farm F R I T H that's kind of their design, uh, their system. And that's a, the cover cropping one. And then, um, cardboard is another one or lasagna gardening is another one where they're, you know, you're laying straw and then compost and then straw and then compost and then some cover crop. I did an interview on the podcast with, um, uh, Jared Smith of Jared's real food in San Diego. And that's what he did was two acres of lasagna gardening. And which is cool because you think of that as kind of a background, a backyard method, but he, you know, scaled that quite a ways up to something productive and profitable. And he does, he implements some permaculture systems, uh, but he does it, you know, with, with the mind of, of making a living. And I think that's really cool. Um, the cardboard, I think there's seeds of solidarity. I, I believe that, uh, Andrew Mefford interviewed s several of the people that I'm talking about actually for that book. Um, but yeah, he interviewed, uh, Seeds of Solidarity, I think they use a cardboard system and they really like it because it increases the fungal activity so much. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's just, there's so many different options and, uh, yeah. Is there any questions? Do you, I do have anything a question. There that I should, yeah. Uh, so did you tell me you had sheep in the beginning? Do you yeah. use your sheep manure for any of this? Like the compost? Well, we rotate our sheep on pasture, so they are rarely in a place long enough to amass any amount of compost manure. Um, we rotate, we move them about every 30, 24 to 36 hours and less so in the spring. We move them pretty fast to keep them from killing the spring grasses. We tr we're trying to, that's like our new approach. Um, so they're rarely in a place long enough to do that. However, we will sometimes have the mow down cover crops and, uh, that's another option. They're not the best, most even mowers, but, um, they do a pretty good job. And then they're also fertilizing as they go too. So we've had them, I had a bunch of, uh, Sudan grass last year and didn't have any good way of managing it. And basically just had the sheep go into it. And had them just mow it down and they did a great job. And it was probably like six foot tall. And I left for a couple days and came back and it was completely flat to the ground. Um, so it's amazing what they can do. And is Sudan uh, grass not... a cover crop? Yep. Sudan grass is like a summer cover crop. Uh, it's also known as sorghum Sudan grass or sorghum. I thought um, I heard of it before, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, it's a good one. There's summer cover crops are a little bit less 
utilized, I think, than they should be in the in the no-till system. Like there are some people working on some good no summer cover cropping systems like Wild Hope Farm. I know Sean Yodnicek is is experimenting with some different summer cover crops, maybe millet and a couple others. But um he uh I think that's really got some potential for putting in a midsummer cover crop that you could essentially molt, you know, uh mow down or um crimp down and then cover for a a, a bed for maybe brassic fall brassicas or something. Um yeah, that's like a that there's definitely a lot of room there. But there's buckwheat is one. It's not a buckwheat's really tender as far as summer cover crops go. So it's not a great mulch. Um, but it's a good bee, you know, good pollinator crop. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a very, very fast crop. I mean, it's, it's like the radish of the cover crop world. It just, it moves really fast. So it blocks out weeds really well. Um, and, and then there's some beans. I think cowpeas are another one that people use a lot, uh, in terms of summer cover crops, but it's nice to have a mix of them because you want a mix of the phytonutrients that are, or you want a mix of the, you know, various, um, uh, exudates that the plants are making through photosynthesis to feed, you know, to increase your soil microbiology. It's, you want a diversity of cover crops when you can. I grew buckwheat last year for the first time and did like a chop and drop and just let it like chopped it up into tiny pieces and let it just lay on top of my bed. And then I planted raspberry canes in them and we'll see what happens. Cool. Yeah. Buckwheat's fun. I like that crop a lot. I've, I've tried to crimp it down and then plant into that and it sort of works, but buckwheat's also kind of, it'll come back a little bit. So, um, but mowing it is a good way of just, if you get it right up to that flower stage when it's getting ready to start making seeds and then mow it, that does a pretty good job of just, it doesn't want to come back after that. Yeah. I tried to grow carrots in it while it was growing and they didn't grow at all. I guess I should have maybe cut it sooner. Right. Yeah. The buckwheat's going to outrun your carrots. It's so fast. Um, well, I put them in like right a... before it was going to, I thought I was going to cut it down and take it out, but they never did anything. Oh, huh. I never did. Cut yeah. It I don't know. That... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of that intercropping, there's a lot of potential for that. Um, and you know, that's a big thing that the Parisian market gardeners would do is, is try and time their crops. You know, the classic one is kind of, um, uh, radishes, carrots, and lettuce that you'd sow them, you'd plant them kind of all at the same time. And then your radishes would come out and then you cut your lettuce out. And after that, you'd get your carrots out. Um, Hey, I'm intensive loose. scales Wait, to I lost get you as there much. Oh, okay. The last thing I heard was cut you your lettuce out. Hear me? Yeah, I can. But the last thing I heard was Did cut you your me? lettuce I out. I lose you. Maybe, oh, okay. Should I call you? So, oh, no. Okay. You know, like the Parisian market gardeners would essentially sow. I'll just, if you want me to start that whole thing over. Um, the, the Basically, the Parisian market gardeners would sow radishes and they would pull the radishes first and then they would pull the you know after the radishes were done they could pull the lettuce because the lettuce canopy went away and then after the lettuce came out then the carrots would come out and you could pull all that and you'd get three crops out of that same bed and that was kind of their 
I'm gonna call eyes all of their space. And I think that's something that's really underrated. When and try a new connection. Okay. Sorry. But you just keep feeding That's out. okay. All right. Oh, okay. That's... Can you hear me? I can hear you. What did you... Do you want me to start the whole Parisian Market Gardener thing over? Uh, it, I got most of it. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I'm happy to start it over if it if it's relevant. Um, I think it's really cool because it, you know, with the Parisian market gardener thing, it's it's good because a lot of people think of, you know, farming in terms of trying to make money on it. That you need a lot of acreage, and and they've they certainly proved that is not the case. That they could that if you really intensively manage your soil, that you can get a lot of you can get a lot of you know, food out of very small space. So yeah, on that carrot, lettuce, radish example, they were getting three crops out of the same bed and then they were pulling those pretty in pretty short order. So radishes are 25 days, lettuce is 55, carrots are about 60, 65. So it was just be 10 or 20 days after they pulled the last crop that their next crop would be out. And if you could do that throughout the whole season, you're pulling a new, doing, getting a whole new harvest every 20 days. That's pretty great out of one bed, you know? So I think that's a really brilliant way of looking at it. And that's what a lot of market gardeners are doing now is, is trying to think as intensively as possible. So kind of getting back to our point about um, intercropping, there's a lot of potential there. And one of the things that we're doing on our farm, I call it the Everbed system because it's ever planted, is that we're growing. A, we have one bed that's kind of my experimental bed. And the whole idea is that I'm monitoring, you know, the organic matter build and all those things. But um, the idea is that I'm essentially, it's never out of production ever. So, uh, when a crop, in fact, it's, it's less than that because it's, it's more than that because it's not only is it never out of production before the next, before the last crop comes out, the next crop is already in. So it's already, so, uh, right now I've got kale in there and I'm going to be planting tomatoes but I won't do anything with that kale until the tomatoes are in the soil and can take up some of those microbes from the kale, can kind of take advantage of that, the, the microbial life that's living off the kale and it'll come over to the tomatoes. And once those are established, then I can get rid of the kale. So the idea is that you're constantly keeping something planted um, and you're trying to match families like kale and uh, solanacea is not exactly like a, you know, the most amazing match in the world, but trying to just do that as much as possible. Like last year we did in the Everbed, we had celery. Uh, and when the celery was pretty well mature, I planted, um, summer lettuce. So the celery, you know, we get pretty hot down here in Kentucky. Um, so the celery provided a little shade for the summer lettuce. And then two weeks later I cut the celery out and the lettuce grew up into that space. Um, and it was well established and it had time to kind of get used to the heat and the sun and it had that shade to kind of help protect it a little bit. And so I got the celery out and then I had, you know, lettuce right behind it. So that, that's sort of the idea behind Everbed is to always keep something planted and try and make those two crops, um, assist one another. But my question is about the kill. You didn't pick any kale or you mean like you just didn't take out the plants that like you'd already harvested most of the prime kale on the plant before right so you... we just picked that's a good question we just picked the leaves off when we were harvesting off of it and in fact it was out since everbed is in the middle of the field 
it wasn't a high production bed over winter. It was more that kale by January just became a cover crop because it was alive. It was a winter bore kale, so it's very hardy. I had it covered, but you know, it wasn't thriving. I mean, it was very, very cold through January and February. So um, it was just kind of hanging out, but that whole time it's photosynthesizing and it's feeding the microbial life and building fungal networks and all those good things so that when I want to put those tomatoes in, uh, it's all ready to go. So I'm not going to till it at all. I just jam the tomatoes in and keep rolling. I feel like you've learned so much since the last time I talked to you. <laughs> so what else do you guys plant? Were you going to tell us like your planting rotation and thingy? Yeah, I mean, we do we we do a small CSA, so we plant a lot of different stuff. Um, my favorite crops right now are kind of celery and lettuce. I do a lot of celery and lettuce. Uh, I really like growing those crops. Celery is really slow, but I, I, I think it's a great performer, and you have some options on how you want to harvest it. You can either har- harvest the stalks and just keep it growing, or you can harvest the whole you know, head of celery and sell it that way. Um, but it's, it's good because we use so much compost that it sucks up excessive phosphorus to an extent. So one thing with excessive compost is that you wind up with excessive phosphorus, but celery is a good way of managing that, um, because it is a very phosphorus hungry crop. It's also a very thirsty crop. Uh, so it does require a little bit more water, but here in Kentucky, we, last year we got over 72 inches of rain or something. Um, so it's pretty, we get a fair amount of rain. Generally speaking, we can't have droughts, but we generally get a lot of rain. So our, it doesn't have a big irrigation, um, need necessarily for us, but that is one issue with celery is it's very thirsty, but it, uh, creates a lot of roots. It has these really incredible root systems that when you cut the celery out and I'm not yanking the plant out, I always leave the plant roots in the soil. Um, that, leaves a lot of carbon behind for the plant life to, uh, for the microbial life to thrive on and live in and you utilize until there's another crop growing there for them to, to get the photosynthesized, you know, exudates the photosynthate from. So, um, yeah, celery, celery is kind of a big crop for us. So a lot of, we grow, um, I don't know about 50 different crops. Uh, we specialize kind of in carrots beets. I don't know that we specialize in beets. I'm trying to specialize in beets. Um, celery, lettuce, uh, green onions. And those are kind of our bigger crops that we do. And then we do a lot of different little stuff. Uh, you know, we try and we do a lot of cherry tomatoes and, um, we do cold, you know, we'll grow some kohlrabi and we'll grow a lot of kale and that sort of stuff. But, um, those ones I said at the top were definitely my, those are definitely kind of our favorites. Um, I'll tell you, Mike yeah. could be a specialist in golden beets. Like he, I think he could sell yeah. every golden beet that he can grow. Yeah, that's a great crop. I love beets, but oh, it's me too. Those golden ones are so sweet. It's just incredible. Yeah, they are. I, 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 I've always been a big fan of beets, beets and goat cheese. I just, that combination, it's so classic, but it's so delicious. Um, so many things I, I could eat beets all day long. I love beets. Uh, and, but we often have trouble growing them. We get the rust. What is that? I forget what the name of that, uh, disease is that fights that really, the beets don't like because we have high humidity here. So, um, they get those little spots on the leaves really badly. 
And um, sometimes that's a kind of a challenge for us, but hoping with better, you know, with more improved soil that that will help um, to, to protect the beets will have a little bit more, uh, protection against those things. But, um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great crop. I'm always trying to get a little bit better. We found that we grow it really well in the middle of the summer in the tunnel. If the tunnels are open, fully aerated, you know, they're not that hot, that, that plastic actually provides a little bit of shade. Uh, so we like growing beets in the tunnel in the summer that works out pretty well for us. Now, do you transplant your beets or do you direct seed them? We do a little of both. Uh, I really like the idea of direct seeding, but it never works out as well as I want it to. Um, it's always a little bit too thick and I don't like thinning anything. I think that's just a giant waste of time. I can't stand thinning stuff. Um, so if I can avoid that at all, I do. I prefer to transplant. We're trying some of the paper pots this year just experimentally. We're going to try some beets in those. Um, I, when it comes to direct seeding, I really like one called Zeppo that has, uh, it's kind of a smaller beet. It's maybe more of like a medium sized round, uh, red beet. And, um, I like it because it has fewer seeds per pod. So in a situation where you're sowing them into transplants, like you're doing transplants, uh, that's not as beneficial to you because then you have to sow a few more than you normally would. But when you're direct seeding, it's nice because then oftentimes you're only getting one seed per pod, which is what you want instead of having three or four seeds per beet pod and, you know, having a big cluster, several big clusters all in a, all in a row, um, of beets. You really want, you know, ideally there, you get one beet every two or four inches and then it gets nice and fat and you can cut that and, or you can pull that and bunch it and sell it pretty easily. But when they bunch up, you know, you get a mixture of you lose the uniformity and it, you have to kind of pick through them. So, um, that can be kind of a challenge, but, uh, uh, we do transplant some of them. Yeah, it can be, that's a, a big job, but we do it. I've had a hard, I think we've had a harder time getting them to grow when you transplant them. Mike's have more uh -huh. of a, just direct seeding them, but we do pull thin a lot, uh, and you can, uh, to me, you can only eat so many fresh beet greens. Sure. Yeah. To be fair, it, uh, thinning them is effective. Absolutely. Like getting your good spacing, right. It's just in terms of a production model. Um, it does, it's very time intensive and, and it's the kind of labor that nobody really wants to do. It's like get on your hands and knees and crawl in the hot sun picking, you know, yeah. little minute beats out of, out of a bed. So it's, it's a hard job, but, um, and it, but it's a great job, you know, for a backyard, like just for your home. That's garden. what I was thinking. I was like, I don't mind doing it when I'm sitting on the edge, one of my deep, deep beds and I can just sit out there, but like out in his mini farm where he's got like big, long beds of beets, it's not as much fun out there. Yeah. 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 That's a big job. That's definitely thinning, thinning beets and carrots on a, on a big bed of them is, uh, yeah, that's a challenge. So how about something that didn't work so well last season? Oh man, we did have a, we did have quite a few failures last year. And I think in our transition to fully being no-till, um, we miscalculated on a few things in terms of, 
Um, not getting the soil well enough prepared before we planted it. So that would be like not getting the minerals into it, not maybe checking for the compost in some cases, not broad forking. Um, because we kind of just felt like the soil would take care of it, which is really a bad approach. Um, a flawed approach. I shouldn't say it's a bad approach, but it's a flawed approach because for us in our situation, and it's always about your context, right? But in our situation, um, yeah, we should have got some the whole garden prepared to be no-till instead of just forcing it to be no-till. Um, and, and that, that's just something I've learned in talking to people through the podcast really and, uh, studying because the one thing, like one reason that we started the podcast is there's just no information on how to do this. Um, we just felt like there, this is something we've been wanting to do forever. And we did some no-till trial. We've done no-till trials every year. Um, but there was no information. Nobody was saying like, this is how you do it from point A to point B, you know, like this is how this is start to finish, how you, how you start a bed and how you flip a bed and how you, um, irrigate it or whatever. Like there was no information like that out there. There was very little. There was a few YouTube videos by people like singing frogs farm, which they do a very similar system to us. Um, in fact, they're kind of our inspiration for the way we do our system. Singing frogs farm is great. Um, Brian O'Hara is another really brilliant no-till market gardener. Uh, he's been doing it for a long time. Jay, um, Jay, Arm, Jay and Polly Armour at Four Winds Farm, they've been doing it for 25 years. But a lot of these people have just been doing it. They didn't think of it as like a new system or something that people would really be into. Or when they tried to talk to people about it, everybody laughed at them because, you know, tractor farming and those sorts of things. And these people were kind of doing it with minimal or no tractor uh, on really small acreage. But, um, yeah, I mean, when you when you start to dig into their numbers and stuff, they're, they're making really good livings uh, growing without tillage on fairly small acres and um, have been doing it for a long time. So it's uh, so but that that said, no, there wasn't a lot of information about from them or anyone else on how to do it. So we that's yeah, that's kind of the the genesis of the podcast was that we realized like we need to get this information aggregated and we started the website that does that too, notillgrowers.com. And um but and that's the but you know, back to like my the failures in terms of like that's one of the things I've learned from doing those things is that uh we you really need to prep your garden to be a no-till garden. Uh you can't just expect it to to sort of transition on its own. And, um, I think that's an important, I just think that's an important thing to, to, to emphasize. Um, but you know, we had a couple crop failures that were kind of unnecessary and then we had some, you know, definitely some good successes, but, um, we were really good. We were really successful with summer lettuce, but we were, we failed on several beet plantings and, um, broccoli brassicas last year were terrible. We had a terrible brassica year. And I think it's because our soil brassicas tend to like maybe a partial, primarily more fungally dominated. Seems to me that they like a more fungally dominated soil. But I'll bet that when we transitioned, that our soil was much more bacterial. So it wasn't quite what they were looking for. And um, and that's from tillage. Tillage, like fun, fungi, are strands, right? So they're you know they're like kind of hairs. But when you till, you rip all those apart. What you do also when you till is you kind of pump a bunch, you kind of whip a bunch of, I don't want to say whip a bunch of oxygen. You, you, you encourage a more bacterial 
environment because bacteria are going to survive that tillage better than the fungi. But you really want to balance for most crops. You want a balance of your fungi and bacteria. So um, the incentive that first year, that transition year can be hard because it's still bacterially dominated. Um, and that, I mean, I think that's kind of what happened with our brassicas last year, just all across the board, all of them, kale, kohlrabi, radishes. Finally, towards the end of the year, our turnips were really coming around. We were starting to have some really solid turnips, but uh, up until that point, it was not going well for us. So that was kind of rough, but um, I think we figured it out by the end of the year and I, I'm hopeful for brassicas this year. We'll see. We had a problem one year where Mike grew a whole bunch of broccoli and the squirrels came in and pooped on it. And like, they take like one bite and then move on. Yeah, man. It was really That's frustrating. Squirrels are not in, it's funny for us, like squirrels aren't an issue. Um, but we, you know, we have other, we have other pests, like obviously we have deer and rabbits and stuff like that. But I always think it's interesting. Some of the different pests that people have, like a interview guy named, um, Steven Chianchoso and he's in, um, Hawaii and his major pest, their major pest there. They don't have a lot of big animal pests like deer or anything like that. They have wild chickens and the chickens will come in and just scratch your garden to death. And I thought that was so interesting, but it just came from somebody, you know, releasing chickens or their chickens getting away or whatever happened. And, uh, there's no predators for the chickens. So the chickens just uh, proliferate (laughs) and, or people that live in urban environments and have squirrel issues. Uh, it's always, it's always interesting to me. Or I, I, there was a farmer named Eric Schultz down in steadfast farm and he runs a, one of those, um, Oh, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with his work, but he, he runs, uh, one of those agra hoods. And he said one of his biggest pests is tourists, which I thought was interesting. People coming and wanting to take pictures amongst the vegetables. Um, and sure. I could see everybody has their pest. I think it's really, I think it's all, it's always a challenge. That's why context is so important into designing your, your sort of production system is that you can't you can't just take copy paste somebody else's system it's got to be relevant to your climate to your pests to your uh you know situation 100% and that's so it's it's a, very attractive to want to do some of the high production high profit market farmers but you know follow their style but the uh, it doesn't always translate, you know, like, uh, Canada doesn't always necessarily translate to, uh, Alabama. And, um, so you have to adjust for that. So do you guys have like any kind of interns or help or it's just you and your wife and you have two very small kids, right? (laughs) Right. So yeah, we, uh, we don't have any help this year. Uh, so we've kind of stepped back We're I don't know. I mean, we, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I don't think it is healthy to run a farm, a production farm without help. I don't think that's a good idea because if I get hurt and I do get hurt um, or I get exhausted or I get, you know, pulled away doing one thing or another, or like the other day, the plastic got ripped on the tunnels on the cat tunnel. So I had to spend two days reef, you know, kind of renegotiating my whole caterpillar tunnel. And that basically stopped production. So there are situations when I realize, like, I don't think it's a good idea to farm by yourself. 
Uh, however, I don't necessarily think that means it has to mean employees. I think that what we're going to start seeing in the broader scheme of things, and this is something we're kind of contemplating, is um, far, collaborative, more collaborative farms, farms with two or more families who are working together uh, for, you know, a shared goal and sharing profits um, and starting businesses together as you would a restaurant or as you would anything else. Like we have <laughs> farming lives in this world where we want to own it. And I, I think that that, that it would be, it would be, you know, it would behoove us as farmers to step back from that and ask ourselves if that makes the most sense. Um, employees are one way to do that, to keep your, to keep your businesses, to hire employees. And it's something we've thought about. We've done in, interns. Um, I, I don't have any, we, Hannah and I started out as interns. I love the internship idea. Um, it's, I'd rather, I think that why the reason that we're so interested in a more collaborative farm possibly in the future is, um, the sense of propriety, you know, the sense of propriety, the sense of ownership that somebody feels over what you do. That is a rare thing in an employee, but it is something you can come to expect if you share a business with somebody that they're going to have that sense of propriety, that they're going to do something because it has to be done. Um, it's harder to get that out of an employee and it's definitely, you know, an, or an intern. Um, so I don't know. I mean, those are kind of some thoughts on that. Like we don't have help, consistent help. We get help sometimes. We'll have friends that'll come over or, um, you know, we can ask people, people for help and we do. Um, but we try and do most of it, just the two of us. And, uh, that does work sometimes, but yeah, we have two, two young kids. And I think going forward, we want to, to, to have something more, um, uh, with a better safety net. You know, I just talked to Bob Quinn two days ago. He just wrote a book called green by green. I don't know if you've heard of it. He'd probably be a great person for you to interview. Um, but he, a lot of what he talks about is, two families being supported by um, a small farmland or something like that. But he talks a lot about creating jobs and people working a lot like you are like finding like, you know, maybe I think he talks about like in his situation, like they um, grow this like ancient type of wheat. And so they, instead of like him expanding more wheat, they like came up with another business where they, press the oil for the seed from the seeds from the wheat. So then that like the other person maybe, or maybe it's also, they came up with like selling dry land vegetables. I can't remember exactly what the other business is that the other families, but he, I think uh, that would be a lot of like what you're talking about, like working cooperatively and people using their strengths, but doing things together. Yeah, I, I I love that stuff. And there's a great book that just came out um, called Farming for the Long Haul. And it's it's exceptional. It kind of goes through the history of farming communities and cultures and talks a lot about uh, different co-ops and collaborative farming efforts and, and um, different like peasant situations throughout history and the laws that sort of protected them. And farms with multiple users, really interesting stuff. And it, that's, that's definitely sparked my interest a lot is 
Um, I think that's something we should and probably will see a lot more in the future is this sort of co-op collaborative farming. Cool. So uh, anything else you want to tell us or should we like, I have like my little uh, getting to the root of things, which is kind of like a lightning round. Sure. We can go, we can, we can go there. Okay. So Jesse, do you have like a least favorite activity to do that you got to force yourself to get out there and do? Oh man. Uh, I have two. One is rolling up landscape fabric. We're not going to use landscape fabric anymore. Uh, really we're going to use it in a couple places. We'll use it on some tomatoes and some peppers. Um, but I cannot stand that job. It's just so slow and, and we have hundred foot beds. So we have hundred foot rolls of, of landscape fabric. And for whatever reason, I really dislike that job because it, I don't know, landscape fabric kind of falls apart and it gets stringy and it just, I just don't like using it. It's, it's like a plastic, you know, is reusable, but it, it is, I just do not like that job. And the other job that I, I don't know that I dislike it, but washing bins is, is, is often kind of a tedious job. And I've made that a little bit faster, um, by not putting our bins on the ground as much so they don't get as dirty, but washing our harvest bins, that, that job is exhausting for me. <laughs> I, I, I'm cool to do it. I'm happy to do it, but it, uh, can, t- it can wear me out a little bit for sure. I think that's a good point. And in the beginning, you know, you were talking a little bit about the infrastructure that you were looking for, like having a wash station. Are there any other like essentials you feel like are, cause that's like something we talk about a lot. Like we can't wait till like we can set up like a sink and like water so we can wash everything down closer to where I call it Mike's mini farm is. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, I think that the wash pack station is really important just to set it up in a way that's efficient. Uh, having a cooler is really important. Um, I, I mean, some of the bare essentials are, I, each, each section of the farm has its own bare essentials is, is really how I think about it. Like everything that you're doing is a different business in farming, right? Like if you're starting plants, that is a whole industry of it's a whole industry that you have to master that comes with another thing which is like plant bed prep which you know it has its own bare essentials and then um transplanting has some bare essentials and then harvesting has some bare essentials and then washing and packing and then marketing all of these things are really separate businesses um that all tie in together. So some of the things that I often recommend to people getting started in production agriculture, and I know this isn't exactly the answer, maybe the, the, the answering your question, but, um, is not buying, not starting your own plants to begin with. I think it's a good idea to buy from professional plant suppliers, some or all of your first year or two's plants. Now that can be very expensive, but uh, it eliminates that, you know, that whole skill set, if you don't have it, of starting plants, of keeping them alive, of getting them to germinate, keeping mice off of them, like all the things. You know, you can have somebody else send you perfectly beautiful, ready to go transplants and you just get them into the soil. That's kind of one of the things that I recommend, like, to start is is actually outsourcing some of those things just a little bit. You can do some of your own starts if you want, um, but you need a good greenhouse and you need a heated greenhouse and you need consistent water and you need 
you know, to worry about freezing hoses and your electricity failing and all those things. Like take that off your plate and work on your infrastructure whilst you have somebody pay somebody else to do that job. That that's something I, I we're going to start doing a lot more of is um, ordering certified organic plant starts. We have a, spo- a show sponsor, Banner Greenhouses, who we actually sought out because their their plant starts are so nice. So that's that's something that we're going to do more of in the future is getting plant starts from somebody who can grow them really well and ship them. You basically just pick what, you know, and this goes for any propagation house that you have nearby you that's, you know, certified organic. You pick what size, you know, or what uh, date you want them, what seeds you want and how many you want. And um, then they just, they arrive that week that you, you know, ordered them for. Uh, And that's great. And then you just put them right in the ground. So that's something I, I think is an underrated uh, way to get a farm started is actually like just outsource that one element so that you can concentrate on getting your farm going. That's so interesting. I always feel like that's what Mike should specialize in because he is so good at getting seeds to grow. And then I feel like his season would end sooner when, because we have a lot more water in the spring, but we don't have a lot of those other things you're talking about, like, lights and heating pads and like i know i guess if he was going to expand like to me it seems he does a really good job but i suppose if he was going to sell them it would have to be on a grander scale yeah i mean the the only one that i'm really kind of intimately familiar with is banner um and they do i think they have like 18 acres and the majority of that is in greenhouses and they have all the different climates for all the different you know, because every seed has different requirements, different humidity, different temperature requirements, different light requirements, different um, lots of different things. So there, you know, there's a lot of technical detail there, and um, and that goes for starting your own seeds. Like if you're starting lettuce and peppers together, those are two very they have two very different requirements. Peppers are a seven day germinator that needs you know above they like eighty degree and high humidity. And lettuce likes decent humidity, but they like it more like 70 degrees and they only take three days to germinate. So those are those just and then you extrapolate that out to all seeds and suddenly it's it can get very complicated. Um, so it, it seems but I, I should say, like, I like plants. I like growing plants. I enjoy that. And I don't think anybody shouldn't do that, that they should totally sacrifice that if they if that's something they enjoy. But it is it just it's never do I grow plants as good as the people who grow them professionally and send them to me when I need them. Like I can never do that like they can because I don't have the, because I, it's, it's a whole, it has a, an entire skill set involved that is very nuanced and very uh, technical. So um, yeah, we, I think in the future it'd be good for a lot of farmers to grow some of their own starts and know how to do that. Um, but then also, yeah, maybe order some stuff that is a little bit more difficult and more finicky, especially things like herbs. Um, maybe not basil and cilantro, but, you know, rosemary, sage, some of the ones that are a little bit more uh, finicky. Yeah, for sure. Herbs are are difficult. I have a hard time with cilantro, but I don't have a hard time with sage, so you never know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, cilantro is kind of funny. It's a... Uh, it it actually likes a pretty cool soil. Um, you can sow it in the middle of the winter time and it'll germinate in the spring. Um, 
so it's kind of a funny, it, it, it really likes growing when tomatoes aren't. So when tomatoes don't like growing, so I think it's funny that they go well, so well together because uh, they don't really like the same climate at all. That is interesting. So Jesse, what is your favorite activity to do in the garden or on the farm? Hmm. Favorite. I love, you know, we have sheep. They do not make us very much money, but that's like kind of my favorite thing is having uh, something that's not the garden. Like I love the garden. I love gardening. I love every part of it, but I also like just going and hanging out with our animals, um, moving them. I think that's probably my favorite activity at night. They stay in the pasture. Um, yeah, they just, they're, they're a hundred percent in the pasture and they can go under a tree. We have lots of trees in the pasture. Uh, it's sort of a makeshift silvo pasture. Um, so they just kind of go and hang out under the trees and, uh, yeah, they we'll bring them into the barn on rare occasions. Like if they're getting ready to, 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 um, to lamb, we'll bring them around the barn and give them a small section. So if they want it, they can have it. But they, I mean, they're so hardy. They're, they're just ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're willing, they're wearing big wool vests, you know, they're, they're good. It's more the summer. That's the issue for us than in the winter. But, um, but even then, I mean, they're, they shed pretty well down to, to nothing and they, they just, um, yeah, they manage their white. So that's nice that, you know, we use Katahdin's or the sheep that we have. So they don't, they don't have a lot of, um, issues with that, with, uh, you know, getting too hot at least. They're not like wool sheep. Wool sheep are really hard down here because of the humidity and they get fly strike and that sort of thing. But, um, if you, if you're not, you know, uh, uh, shearing them. Our problem about predators. <clears throat> yeah. Predators. We use electric solar electrified netting. And then we have a dog who doesn't live with them, but he kind of roams the property, um, of great Pyrenees. And, uh, yeah, I mean, predators can be a big issue for sure. Uh, I think, and you all wait, you're in Montana, right? So you all yeah. have, some pretty big predators up there. Uh, yeah. for us, it's like coyotes, you know, we have some of those and we have some foxes, uh, but we don't have anything that really like occasionally like a stray dog or something, or maybe a stray couple dogs will yeah. come through and that can be an issue. Um, because they don't really understand the electric netting like the coyotes do. The coyotes are used to it. They've seen it. They've tested it. Um, the dogs kind of just bumble right into it cause they're, dogs and they you know they're sometimes people's pets and they just kind of ran off for the day or whatever um so that that's one of our issues is that we've seen them try and get in the fence before yeah and we have like mountain lions i think too but i don't know we had some sheep and something got them i don't could have been neighbor dogs we're not really sure i would i mean mountain sad. lions would not surprise me because they would probably be able to jump our net we don't really have them i mean they exist in kentucky but we don't really have them we have um, a lot of mountain lions yeah so that and i mean that whatever that got our sheep tried to drag them out of the fence like and all the, they were all up against the fence so it had oh. to be a pretty big animal i think yeah anyway yeah, onto a kinder note What's the best gardening <laughs> advice you've ever received? The best gardening advice. Gosh, um, that's a good question. I think, um, 
I think that I, I feel like you asked me this several years ago and I said the my favorite thing is the just keep planting idea of just just keep planting just keep in the middle of the summer when it's hot and you're tired just keep planting because you're not going to regret it in like two months um that I think that you know that that's always been a long favorite of mine is just keep planting it's like become a mantra um Ah, gosh, is there anything more recent that anyone's told me? I kind of like that. That's good. Yeah, that's my, I mean, that's my favorite is just, you know, just, it kind of has its own, it's it's, it's definitely one you'll see from farmers is this idea of just, just keep planting because you just get so tired and you almost don't even want to put anything else on the ground because you know you're going to have to reap what you sow, (laughs) but you just do it. And then, you know, October, everything comes to a halt and you're like, oh gosh, I'm so glad I have something to eat, (laughs) something to sell. (laughs) I know how that feels. How about your favorite tool? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Oh gosh, my wheelbarrow. I use that thing like crazy. I guess I would need a shovel, but I guess <laughs> if I had to take one tool, it'd be my wheelbarrow. I love my wheelbarrow. I use it like crazy. That's what I said. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, I, I don't know what I would do without it because I, I do everything. Yep. My first thought was a shovel and then I was like, wait, no, I could figure something out. A wheelbarrow is way harder to replace. Yeah. Just the wheel. I mean, I, I. With a flat free tire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I use it for everything. I'll haul water out to the sheep. I'll haul hay out to the sheep. I just walk around with my wheelbarrow. Like it's like a, like a friend. It's my, <laughs> I use it for everything. It's great. Cause it's, it's the perfect leverage, you know, for yes. moving heavy stuff. I moved a bunch of minerals out of the back of the van earlier with the wheelbarrow, just cause it was the closest thing to me. Um, and the dolly, I use the dolly a lot too, just our hand truck. Um, so anything with wheels, I'm good with that. I, I like I like the wheelbarrow and the doll, the hand truck. Cool. How about a favorite recipe? What do you like to eat from the garden? Oh, uh, the other day I was just this isn't maybe my necessarily my I my favorite thing to eat from the garden is just a baked sweet potato, but my with some butter. I mean that's we grow this heirloom uh, sweet potato that's um, just the best. It's called Golden Nugget. It's been in our family. We've been growing it for almost 10 years. Uh, we got it from somebody who'd been growing it for 20 years. They'd got it from somebody who'd been growing it for their family had been growing it for over a hundred. So it's been like really well adapted to our area and it's just delicious. It, it's unlike any sweet potato. It just, it doesn't need any sugar. It doesn't need anything. It's just delicious. Um, yeah, and, I love sweet potatoes. Um, I, I, it's, and that's I, a I, good cover crop, right? That adds lots of nutrients to your soil. I was just thinking about it like a cover crop. I don't know. I mean, it does. Like, it certainly covers the soil really well. Um, I was wondering, I was kind of thinking about trying it as a little mini trial of just leaving it in the soil and not harvesting it and seeing, because we always have extra slips when we're going into, you know, after we plant. Um, So I was thinking about trying some sweet potatoes on a, as a cover crop. But no, I've never done it that way. Um, I think though, I, in terms of a recipe, my favorite would be a shaved fennel salad. Just fennel, shaved, a little citrus, maybe some herbs, uh, maybe some pecorino. It's just that from the garden is the most delicious, fresh, springy thing. Something I look forward to every year. 
Interesting. Uh, how about a favorite internet resource? Where do you like to surf on the web? Um, assuming I'm not allowed to say notillgrowers.com, I will say the, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that I used to, I really like, I don't know. I really like some of the more, uh, gosh, YouTube is really great. Facebook has a lot of potential. It can be very exhausting to get on Facebook. I think last time we spoke, I, I said that I really like the Facebook groups, but I have such a hard time going to Facebook anymore that uh, I don't spend as much time on the groups as I used to, but there's a lot of great information in there. The, all the market gardening groups. Um, uh, but the YouTube, there's, there's like uh, YouTube podcasts, all that stuff, like um, specifically advancing eco agriculture is one I've been really into lately. And that's John Kempf. He's very nerdy. Uh, I just interviewed him. Did you? Oh, I want to. Yeah, like I just put it out like two weeks ago, I think. Did you? I didn't see it. I was just looking through your feed. I love John Kemp. Yeah. You You should. Yeah, that's great. And and anybody that's listening, you should go listen to that one if you skipped it because it's. uh, Yeah, John Kemp is brilliant. Cool. Uh, Because he's got some interesting stuff going on, right? About feeding the plants and then the plants will feed the soil. Yeah. He does a lot of, I mean, he's, he's really into the microbiology, um, and definitely a big proponent of plants and moisture. Um, I got to see him at the acres conference last this past December. And that was one of the things that he really emphasized was, was, uh, you know, microbial life and a lot. I mean, he gets really technical on some stuff, but, um, uh, not as much the like remineralization as much as like, uh, microbial treatments and, um, definitely, uh, you know, keeping, keeping the soil moisture, the whole soil surface moistures level up to keep your microbial life, you know, uh, satisfied and alive. Yeah, he was fascinating. He was a great guest. And I've had a lot of people ask about him. Yeah. Yeah, he's cool. I really like John Kim. There's a lot of I mean there's there's a lot of really great people. I like Elaine Ingham is another one that she's, you know, she's along the lines of John Kemp. We're focusing more on soil biology. Um yeah. all the she, all the agronomists. Her. Yeah, she's great. How um, about a favorite reading material, like a book or a magazine? I really love I mean it's hard. I keep talking about my show sponsors, but I really love growing for market. I love that publication. Like, uh, they are, I just like the diversity of stuff and how technical it is. I love that it's written by farmers. Um, that's a, yeah, that, I mean, that's a great, that's a great written, you know, publication. Um, and then that book that just, that I just mentioned farming for the long haul, I think I'm going to read it and reread it several times. It's got so much information and it's dense with ideas for collaborative and cooperative farming. Um, yeah, I, I think those two are kind of my, um, what I'm into right now in terms of like written publications. Awesome. All right. Well, Jesse, we've been talking for a long time. Ready for my final question? Sure. Shoot. If there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, 
What do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? I think that one of, and maybe this is just because I've been thinking a lot about the collaborative farming efforts and that sort of thing, but I think that we've, I think that one of the biggest issues facing uh, the world right now is a lack of community is a lack of respect for the capital of community and how important it is to have to have and know your neighbors, to really work beside them. And, um, and this is something upon which I know I can improve too. And it's something that one of the ways in which I feel as though we are working on it uh, is through our farming, uh, you know, having relationships, the CSA model I think is important. And also, you know, we're starting a, we're helping to start a pay what you can restaurant. It's a pay it forward, pay what you can restaurant through the one world everybody eats foundation. That's like a, that's a very, it's a similar model to that, to that, um, organization. And the idea is that you can pay what you, you know, you can essentially pay for your meal. Like any, like you're just going to a restaurant, you can pay a little bit more and that money goes towards feeding somebody who can't pay as much. You can pay a little, you can volunteer for a, for a meal, or you can volunteer and donate that meal. You can donate meals all you want. Um, and the idea is kind of bringing everybody into the same space and having them kind of have conversations about stuff. So it's not, um, you know, there's a big community table and, um, uh, and also it, 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 goes beyond just the inside of the restaurant, right? It's, it's supporting a lot of local farmers and it's encouraging local farmers to be better at selling to restaurants be, by giving them more chances and giving them some guidance. Uh, you know, I'm kind of, I act as the liaison between the kitchen and the farms. And, and, um, I was speaking with somebody earlier today and she was like, well, we've never really done restaurant sales because we can't always be that consistent. I was like, well, if that's something you want to work towards, we want to work with you. So there's those little things that I think are really important um, in terms of of what's going to improve the world is is better relationships and more community. Jesse, this is why I think millennials are rock stars, and you guys are like <laughs> the best generation. Like, how many people need to hear this? Like, what date? What are we talking? What was the news all about today? New Zealand total people being divisive, people not getting along, people, you know, and then what's the other thing on the news? The kids with the climate change and not going to school on Friday because yeah. people aren't. And so this is just so great. And this is why I love millennials because everything you've said today has been like golden seeds. People are learning a ton. You're enthusiastic. You're passionate. You're taking care of our planet. And thank you so much for spending all this time with us. Happy to do it, Jackie. Thank you so much. And thank you for putting this podcast together. I think it, uh, it's just such a great resource. Aww. Well, thanks. Okay. Well, you have a great day. Tell, wait, tell listeners how to connect with you first. Yeah, you can find, uh, you can find information about the podcast at notillgrowers.com. You can find the podcast wherever you get podcasts. It's the no-till market garden podcast. Um, and uh, you can find us on Instagram at No-Till Growers. Those are all good sources for, for keeping keeping up with us. Huh, that's funny. I was wondering if you were on Instagram when you were saying um, you haven't been on Facebook much. Yeah, yeah. I prefer Instagram, I guess. Uh, it's maybe perhaps a little less div divisive 
and um, distracting. I can get on and off it pretty fast, whereas I just don't feel like I can do that as well on Facebook. Hmm, that's interesting. For me, I feel like Facebook like relaxes me, but I have pretty good feed and just the new. I don't know, like it makes me feel after watching the news on TV and then I go to my Facebook news feed that's filled with people that think like I do mostly. I feel uh-huh. like at the end of the day, I don't know. Right. And then I it's... like catch up on what are family and friends doing locally. Like I kind of look at that anyway, but, um, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Different niches filled, you know, for people that are into that. And, uh, you know, specifically like no-till market gardening, it feels like such a narrow niche, but we get a lot of interest and it's, uh, it's been great. We've been, we've really had fun doing it. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to grow like crazy because there's a lot of interest in that right now. And just, you're educating so many people and it's, you know, creating green jobs out there maybe for some people that didn't even know this was an option. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I hope that it that it does and increases people's profitability and maybe decreases their workload a little bit, gets their soil a little bit more ecologically in balance, um, can, you know, traps the carbon, all those things. I mean, I think it can do all of those things. And that's the those are the ultimate solutions, right? The solutions that can um, not just make somebody money, but all, solve all the other things that concern them. So I think that no-till gardening, no-till market gardening has that potential. I do too. I think it's a fantastic podcast and you're out there well, changing you, the world for us and taking care of Mother <laughs> Earth all at the same time. Well, likewise. I, and I the same value. being a great dad. <laughs> yeah. I, I Yeah. It's it, That's important. We're actually getting ready to go to soccer practice here in a few minutes. Okay. Have fun. Thanks, Jesse. Well, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jackie. Yep. Bye. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, It starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. So Deer Busters is located in Waynes- Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, but we work with many different homeowners, gardeners, pet owners to protect their landscapes from deer damage. And we offer do-it-yourself deer fencing and plastic and metal fence options. So we have a a whole lot of different fence options for every unique gardener. Deer Busters is uh, an online company. We're on DeerBusters.com. And uh, if you're local to Maryland or Pennsylvania, you can come by and check us out. 
but we do not have physical locations across the country. So DeerBusters.com is the way to go. We also have an active social media platform, Facebook and Twitter, and we are ready to help answer any questions and help our growers protect their landscapes from wildlife damage. We're here to help uh, growers all across the country with our fencing. Hey there, Green Future Growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.